0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of
1: Jesus together.
2: Today we are continuing and concluding, actually, our series through the book of Ephesians. So if you have uh, a Bible or a Bible app, uh, you can go ahead and turn with us in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 10, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, We actually have a ton of ground to cover this morning. We're kind of taking what should be a series and trying to talk about it in a day, Um, And I've asked Chris Losey, who many of you guys know, to teach with me as we cover uh, what are really some of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. Uh, From the opening chapters of Scripture, uh, the Bible actually describes a world at war. And now, as Paul closes his letter, he's going to place us as the New Testament church in the middle of this cosmic battle that has been raging for millennia. So we'll pick up in Ephesians 6, verse 10. uh, And as we do, I believe our friend Stefan from India is going to read the verses for us this morning.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Stefan, and I'm from Mumbai, India. I'm part of a church called Harvest of Grace, and we meet in one of the suburbs here. At the back, you can see a few of the the church just ended and we're just having coffee. It's so fellowshipping before we go back uh, into our busy lives, the busy weeks. It's so beautiful uh, that we can be one family across different nations. And I know Matt personally. I met Matt a couple of years ago in South Africa. And it was so nice uh, to spend time with him and hear of how God moved in his heart to pioneer this work in, in America. And as we spend time together, I really felt both of our hearts really connect and unite uh, in uh, what he was doing. I've uh, been speaking to him over these last few years, being in touch, part of the story of how he started taking two jobs and, and planting the church. And I, I hear that the church is doing well and is, is, is getting, beginning to be established. And it's so exciting to know that leader's heart is moving among you, that God is with you. And it's so nice to, to hear your leader's hearts who are so sold uh, for Jesus. Uh, we're going to be reading from Ephesians 6 in a short while. So I, I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, do open to Ephesians 6. We're going to be reading from verse 10 onwards. Uh, so I will give you some time, a couple of min- not a minutes, a couple of seconds to just open up your Bibles or your phones. And if you can follow with me uh, from verse 10 onwards. And it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's close our eyes as I just pray for you. which Lord, for the churches in America. I thank you for the church uh, in America, which is in Spokane. I thank you for what you are doing with them and among them. I thank you, Lord, that you have been with them since they have planted out. And I just ask you, Lord, that as today, this morning, that they they work through this passage and this piece of scripture, that you will illuminate this in their hearts. You will illuminate this in their minds, Father. I pray Lord that they will be men and women who, who stand out and step out as ambassadors for the gospel in that community, Lord. I pray that you your light, Jesus, you would shine brightly in that, Father. As they start to do different things, as they start to reach out and within the community, Father, would you go before them? Would you stand with them? Not just I pray. I thank you, Lord, that you are with them. I thank you that they will be men and women who are not just thinking about the gospel in America, but carrying the nations in their hearts. That they will find strength, Lord, in, in tough times when they are down, Father, they, they will find strength, in situations where they might feel down, I pray, Lord, Jesus, would your word be in their minds, would, they, would your words be there, Lord, before them, that they will put on all this whole armor of God, I thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing, and I thank you that you are with them, I pray, Lord, Jesus, as they, as they are this this morning, that you would go before them, and in the week as well, I thank you, Jesus, for all you, you are doing, in your name, Jesus, amen. It's so good to uh, just send us a small... I'm kind of just being and just being part of one family. Uh, we are praying for you guys. I'm continuously praying in touch with Matt, hearing stories of what God is doing among you. We are with you. We are one family. We are regions beyond.
2: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the time humanity is created, creation is at war. The serpent, later identified as Satan, enters the garden in an attempt to pull humanity into his rebellion. And it works. Chaos and darkness descend over the scene, and humanity has lived in a war zone ever since. This battle, this tension, permeates the pages of Scripture. It weaves its way through the entire narrative. And the book of Ephesians is no exception. Paul has reached his concluding remarks, and he ends by taking the topic of spiritual warfare head on. But this topic is not being sprung upon us. Paul has written everything in Ephesians in full view of the battle that rages between Satan and God. Here is just a sample of some of the verses we've covered over the last few weeks. From chapter 1, he says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Those are spiritual warfare terms. He's talking about spiritual beings when he uses that language. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Chapter 2, hey, don't follow the ways you used to live in when you followed the spirit, this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, i.e. Satan. Chapter 4, he says, put off the old self. Do not give the devil a foothold or a way to have undue influence over your life. Finally, he says in chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, or it's not against human beings who disagree with us, but against the spiritualers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's your true enemy. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Here's the problem. Most of us don't believe this stuff. We live in a materialistic culture that basically assumes that the unseen is unreal. And that basic attitude seeps its way into the church as well. A recent Barna study noted that the majority of Christians in America don't believe that Satan exists. Not a majority of of Americans, a majority of Christians in America do not believe that Satan exists. And, And I'm not sure what they believe exactly. That the Bible was speaking metaphorically, that Jesus was confused when he talked about our enemy, That Satan is simply a symbol for evil, but not an actual being? I'm not sure. But the reality is that the Bible talks about our enemy with clarity and consistency from start to finish. Here are just a couple of the many things that the Bible says when it describes our enemy. Our enemy is described as the Satan, which can be translated adversary. None of these, well, he's never given a proper name, okay? They're just these sorts of names. The adversary, the liar, the tempter, the enemy, uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the altar. Uh, he's, he's referenced as the ruler of this world and the god of this age, lowercase g. In another place, it says the god of this age Has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So, though we don't have a proper name for our enemy, this this Satan, this adversary, this accuser, has incredible influence over the world that we live in. So much so that he's called the God of this age. This is the one who came into the garden. This is the one who holds sway over the world as the source of all evil and all rebellion. And Paul says that this battle that started in the garden actually rages on today. And in fact, it will not be finished until the end of this age, as depicted in the book of Revelation. In the meantime, Paul says... We are at war. In fact, Paul says, He, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That is one accurate way of describing the significance of salvation. That means that you were born spiritually blind, And spiritually dead, under the power of our enemy or our adversary. And when Jesus saved you by grace through faith, he he opened your eyes. He brought you to life and he brought you to the other side of those battle lines. You, You switched teams, you switched uniforms, you defected from the God of this age to the creator God of the universe. And so now, those who have been saved by Jesus, we live for the inbreaking kingdom of God, which is not advancing into a vacuum or into empty space, but rather it is destroying and overturning the work of the enemy. Now you belong to the one who triumphed over Satan in the desert, to the one who defeated Satan at the cross, And to the one who will one day fully and finally destroy Satan once and for all. But we live in between those two events. We live in between the triumphing over Satan through his life, death, burial, resurrection. The destruction of Satan at the end of the age. And because we live in between those two events, we're still at war. The victory won at the cross will be brought to completion at the end of the age. But in the meantime, we are at war. And the problem is that most of us don't act like we're at war. Most of us have the mentality of a civilian during peacetime, not a soldier during wartime. And as a result, we are shocked when we get shot at. Civilians in peacetime are always shocked when they get shot at. Soldiers in wartime are not. They're they're prepared for it. They're expecting it. And Paul's saying, hey, you have a real enemy, not a metaphorical one, and he will take shots at you. Be alert, Paul says, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Looking for the unsuspecting person. Looking for the disciple who thinks they are a civilian in peacetime and not a soldier in a time of war. Wake up, Paul says. Be alert, Understand that you live in the middle of a battlefield and act accordingly. Stand up, ready yourself, and put on the full armor of God.
0: That's right. Paul is telling us the answer is not to resort to the weapons and strategies of our day. However, we are still very much a part of this world. So when Paul is using armor for imagery... He was actually using the arm of his day, which would have been Roman armor. After all, Paul did spend quite a bit of time in and out of Roman prisons, so it's no wonder or it's, no, it's not alarm that he would have a very good understanding of Roman armor. Now, since we are pretty far removed from those days, it can be tough to see the subtle implications and connections Paul was making. Paul seemed to have a pretty good understanding, so much so that even the order in which the chapter is laid out, he does so in the order in which a Roman soldier would have put that armor on. But first, before we dive in, let's go to verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord, his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Be strong in the Lord and in his might, not yours, in his might. So step one, trust in his strength, not your own efforts, not your own gifts, not your own charisma, simply the strength of his might. Next, like Paul just stated in verse 11, take a stand and stand firm. It's the first thing one does to prepare for an imminent attack because standing is an act. Standing, it it requires intentionality. And actions are usually, in most cases, a flow of one's beliefs. So first, believe and trust in God's sufficient might. And second, stand. Paul speaks both of withstanding as well as standing as we are called not to just defend, but to also assail. As all good soldiers, fighting a battle is a mix of offensive as well as defensive. So we aren't called to shake hands in battle, exchange our sword for political correctness, or trade our shield of faith, which we're going to talk through, for intellectual pragmatism, but rather stand firm and advance. And I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. I think I like how Charles Spurgeon puts most things. It's just easier to quote him, right? The adversary is the father of lies, and those that are with him understand the art of equivocation, which just simply means to conceal the truth. But saints abhor it. If we discuss terms of peace and attempt to gain something by policy, we have entered upon a course From which we shall return in disgrace. We have no order from our captain to patch up a truce and get as good terms as we can. We are not sent out to offer concessions. It is said that if we yield a little, perhaps the world will yield a little also, and good may come of it. If we are not too strict and narrow, perhaps sin will kindly consent to be more decent. Our association with it will prevent its being so barefaced and atrocious. If we are not narrow-minded, our broad doctrine will go down with the world, and those on the other side will not be so greedy of error as they are now. No such thing, and this is the key, no such thing. Assuredly, this is not the order in which our captain has issued. When peace is to be made, he will make it himself, or he will tell us how to behave to that end. But at present, our orders are very different. Neither may we hope to gain by being neutral or granting occasional truce we are not to cease from conflict and try to be as agreeable as we can with our lords foes frequenting their assemblies and tasting their dainties no such orders are written here are to grasp your weapon and go forth and fight we are to grasp the word and go forth and fight and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, which was verse 11. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Remember, we do not fight flesh and blood. So why would earthly strategy 21st century reason, or worldly interpretation help us to prevail, to succeed in this life, or in Paul's theme, this battlefield. A lot of our fight is in the realm of the subtle, the cloaked, the mundane, and the unseen. And as you will notice, Paul makes a point that the attacks in your life, the battle you were created to fight in, your brave heart moment, is in the realm that Paul calls cosmic powers. Now, that's how the ESV puts it, cosmic powers. So if we are to fight in a battle against spiritual forces in the heavenly places, then we need some very unique weaponry. Simply relying on the strategy and weapons of our day will not work. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Again, take up the whole armor. And when, when concepts are repeated in Scripture, you need to take note. Not only does he repeat the need for the whole armor, but he also repeats the need for us to stand. Paul reminds us to be firm with where our feet are planted. Whether the correlation was intended, your feet, as Paul addresses, are shod with the readiness from the gospel. So this defensive and offensive stance starts with your feet first being planted and protected by the fruit of the Spirit. Next, Paul moves into the belt of truth. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So this all starts, all of this starts with us standing firm Truth buckled around our waist and righteousness in place. And yet, and yet this idea could not be more ambiguous within our current culture. I think Paul, uh, Matt or a little, made some good points on that. And I'm going to bring another Barna study to kind of uh, paint that picture a little bit further for us. Two-thirds, two-thirds of American adults either believe moral truth is relative to circumstances or have not given it much thought. And only about one-third believe that moral truth is absolute. This is the day we live in, when the world says, what is true for you may not be truth for me. The worldview is in stark contrast to what the Bible tells us we are to believe, and even more so, what we are to believe in regard to truth. You see, truth is paramount for us, so much so that it protects you in battle is held together by it. It's so interconnected to all the other pieces of the armor that if you miss this piece of armor, you will not be able to effectively withstand the onslaught that you will endure. Paul provides that imagery in that the belt holds the sword of the Spirit, just like Jesus is both the truth and the word, and they too are interconnected. When we say truth, I know we all have different images that come to mind. However, the truth of God does not change. It doesn't need to be made trendy in order to be made relevant. And it doesn't need to be new for it to be true either. The word says we are called to not only believe that truth is real and it can be known, but we are called to clothe ourselves in it. For it provides a spiritual function needed to withstand the enemy's attacks. Next, Paul then tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which in Romans time, this breastplate would have been connected to the belt. And I know for us it's kind of hard to imagine Roman armor. Of course, Paul was seeing this on a daily basis. But for us, it's important to note that the belt would have been put on after. Not, I'm sorry, the, the uh, breastplate would have been put on after. So the belt would have been put on first. And those two are actually connected. Armor used to protect the organs, especially the heart, Say all the organs, but the whatever the upper organs are. Not not a doctor, but you get the idea. The important one for me, I'm simple, the heart, would be righteousness. So we have to ask ourselves, what is righteousness if we are to wear this? What is it? It's the truth that we, as believers, are in right standing with God because of what Christ did on the cross. That prior to Christ we're at enmity with God, separated from Christ with no hope no ability to save ourselves, and a desire to live apart from God. However, God, not us, God made us alive in Christ and credited us, God's righteousness, at Christ's expense. We are called to rest in his strength and rest in the protection of his righteousness that he imputed. Don't be alarmed when accusations come at you. Accusations like you are, Chris, you are not in right standing because of what you did or what you are doing, or what you will do. The truth of righteousness allows us to stand firm in confidence, in full confidence, while these arrows of accusations melt upon impact of hitting this truth. Your righteousness, received by grace through faith, as we unpacked in Ephesians 2, is all because of what Christ has already done on your behalf, apart from your merit. After all, it wouldn't be grace if it was any other way. Verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The word readiness implies an awareness of being prepared for an attack at all times, which Paul later in the verse affirms. A victorious soldier of Christ is ready At all times. And this readiness is an overflow of the gospel. And the Roman battle shoe, which would have been more like a cleated sandal, was one of the reasons the Romans did so well, not only in battle, but in their ability to cover much ground. You see, the Romans traversed various landscapes and environments, and due to the nature of their shoe, or shoes, not just one, they wore both, (laughs) having studs on the bottom. They avoided the pitfalls that actually plagued a lot of the weaker armies at that time. There were a lot of foot injuries in battle back then. Praise God that's not the case now. (laughs) Paul uses this imagery to make some amazing correlations. The readiness that comes from the gospel allows you to stand firm, not just in your city or country, but in the entire world. It's not limited to your location. And our feet are called to journey to the ends of the world, to share what? Share the good news of the gospel. And guess what? The spiritual shoes we were given were made to do exactly that. Verse 16. Again, we're covering, trying to cover a lot of ground. so a lot, a lot of verses here. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And I like how the ESV puts it. In all circumstances, all Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So in all circumstances, prepared to be attacked. Like flaming darts flying at you from every direction, defend yourself with faith. It doesn't matter the amount of arrows, the time the arrows were flung, the context in which they were shot, nor the speed in which the arrows are flying, the shield of faith can extinguish them all. Paul alludes to this very present reality or truth that this is something to not only not be surprised by, but to also expect. Last, the shield of Paul is referring to is representative of the faith of the believer. The efficacious nature of faith lies not in the person using it or wielding it, but rather who faith is being directed at, which is God. God is the one that provides the growth. Faith is something that we are called to exercise on a daily basis, which means your shield should always, always, always be at your side. If you couldn't see without glasses, would you or even could you leave home without them? No. You would quickly realize that where you are going is dependent on your ability to perceive the environment you are in. And your eyes, unless you've found something better, are the best tools for that job. In the same way, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. It is what we as believers are, arm ourselves with daily. We live by what God says reality is, even the unseen, which for all of us requires faith to see. Faith becomes a lens by which we see the world around us. When your shield, which is faith, gets weak, Do what Paul tells us to do in Romans 10, 17, and consume the word. After all, your faith is fueled by it. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Roman helmet was one of, if not, the best helmet of that era. Now, I'm not a historian, um, but... When you quickly research the adversaries, whom were in many cases using um, helmets of leather, it's pretty ridiculous, um, and yours is bronze or iron, depending on your rank, you can quickly see why the Roman soldier would have been superior. Also, the Roman helmet Paul is painting for us was usually the last piece of armor that a soldier would actually put on before he went into battle. And in a way, it was a a moment, it was something that signified you were going into battle and you were ready to fight. The other element of this helmet is that it protects one of the most important parts of our body, which is our head. You cut off the head, the body is of no use. Now here, Paul is saying that we now stand confident in the freedom that his grace has provided in salvation. We are no longer slaves of sin but we are now slaves to righteousness. You could see the impact of sin all around us. There's no escaping that. However, you are, if you're a believer, you are a new creation. And we are called to put on this identity daily along with the armor that God provides. This part of the body is also where our mind resides, which for most of us, me included, that's where the battle rages the heaviest. The answer, renew your mind. Read the word and preach the good news to yourself every single day, showering yourself with the gospel. After all, the revelation of salvation is found in the good news of the gospel. You are justified, made right, because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Again, salvation is found in Christ alone by grace through faith. And we're going to pick up the end of verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. This is the only time in scripture this term, sword of the spirit, is mentioned, which makes sense why Paul clarifies for us that he is talking about the word. Hebrews 4.12 says, "'For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word, again, is described as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this this weapon should be no stranger to us at all. If you've been in the church, you've definitely heard this story. When Jesus battled Satan in the wilderness, he does what? He uses the sword of the spirit to fight against the schemes of the devil. As you can see, the word is vital for our flourishing and should be consumed every day. Last, defend yourself with faith and fight with the word. We are to be ready always, prepared to fight at all times, and this this is accomplished by putting on the whole, not partial, but the whole armor of God. We rest in his strength. We fight with his word. We trust in the power and the effectiveness of faith and stand firm in the salvation that he provides.
2: Awesome. Uh, I love those pieces that, that you laid out, Chris, and these um, weapons that God has given us uh, to fight with. And they're, they're very, I, I think one of the things that I was hearing and what you're saying is how relevant they are to daily living, uh, because what Paul is talking about is a spiritual battle, right? But in the, in the Western lens, we kind of act as if, oh, well, because it's a spiritual battle, that means it's just kind of theoretical or hypothetical or detached or metaphorical, because that's how we think of the spiritual. And what Paul is saying is it's a spiritual battle, but, but it's not an abstract or theoretical battle. Do you see the difference? It, it's actually a real battle that we are engaged with. So over my short time as a pastor, I can look backward. Uh, and I went from atheism to faith in Jesus to then becoming a pastor. Um, some of you know Chris. You have this background of uh, uh, being involved with like Wiccan and uh, the Muslim faith and all these different things. And between the two of us, we literally have hours of stories uh, of seeing this kind of stuff firsthand. And so in my short time as a pastor, uh, I've prayed with people who were demonically possessed and seen demons cast out of them. Uh, I've prayed with people who were depressed and hearing voices in their head telling them, hey, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. And before they did, they came for prayer and said, I I just can't stop thinking this. I can't stop hearing these voices. Okay, let's pray over that. I I have this lens through which to view the world. I can actually make a lot of sense of what's what's happening to you. So we prayed over that in the name of Jesus, and those voices stopped. They they walked that time of prayer free. They never heard those voices again. Why? Because we're standing on Jesus' authority, recognizing there's actually something very real going on behind that. And not all depression is demonic, in my opinion. But I've prayed with people who were struggling with depression o- outside this is a different set of circumstances and feeling suicidal. And through our time in prayer, not assuming it was demonic, but through our time in prayer, we actually had this sense or discerned, actually, I think this one is. There's something demonic behind this person's depression. And we, we prayed with them on a regular basis. And after enough sessions, there was this moment where it broke and lifted. And, and they walked out of the room without that weight, without that depression, without those suicidal thoughts. Uh, and, and so we could kind of go on and on uh, with the ways that we've seen this uh, manifest in, in obvious ways. And in some ways, those are almost the more fun stories to tell because so, it, it can be so obvious. Oh, of course there's something demonic behind that because that person's just completely possessed. There's no other explanation what they're going through, and occasionally we encounter that, right? We don't see the obvious manifestations as often here, but I want us to be prepared for those. Like, as a follower of Jesus, you should be prepared for the kind of in-your-face obvious demonic manifestation or, or opposition. But as we close, I just want to say a quick word on, on what how I see spiritual warfare manifesting itself on a daily basis because on a daily basis it's typically not the big obvious stuff right so like as you think about heading to work tomorrow morning i'm telling you throughout the course of your day tomorrow you will encounter spiritual warfare my guess is the odds are it won't be a demonically possessed co-worker right Like you probably won't spend your lunchtime like performing exorcisms in the break room or whatever. Like that's not the typical way we experience this in America, but I think the way that we typically experience this on a daily basis uh, is far more subtle. It's masked, it's subtle, it's hidden, and as a result. Uh, We typically don't recognize it. We don't diagnose it because it's not obvious enough for us to see. 90% of the spiritual warfare that you're going to face isn't obvious. It's poisonous seeds being planted. It's uh, uh, warring false ideologies and false narratives about what it means to be human, about what life is truly about, about whether or not God exists and we hear these false ideologies and false narratives and they can sound so logical to us. There's an appeal to it, but in the end, it undermines your faith. Okay? It's, it's biting cynicism and skepticism that are so viral in our culture right now that seeps into the corners of your mind. It's the daily accusation and condemnation and temptation one of us face, but often it 's so subtle that that we that I can literally just think that it 's self talk wow've i 've been really tempted today wow i 've been like really thinking negative thoughts today wow i 've really been like having these accusing thoughts about myself. Ah, must be bad self talk you know it must be my subconscious mind that just keeps you know suggesting all of these things and, and so in the, in the Western world, I think we have a, a huge problem with the diagnosis part of like, wh- what's the source of all of this stuff? What does spiritual warfare look like to me? And because that we tend to think, oh, these are my own thoughts, I think we're twice as likely to believe them because we think, oh, this is just like my own kind of logical thoughts about life. And in reality, what's happening is that the enemy's coming to you and saying, hey, you're dirty. Kind of think about that for a while and say, oh, "Yeah, I, th- I guess I kind of am." I think I, I think I am. And 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 the enemy says, "Hey, it, you're kind of an idiot, huh?" So, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I kind of am. I mean, I should know myself better than anyone else, and yeah, I kind of, I kind of am an idiot. Hey, you, you don't belong in a church community. You're not this, you're not that, you're not holy like they are. You're not like them. You don't fit in. You shouldn't be there. Huh. Yeah, that's a, that's, that actually sounds really logical. I mean, maybe, I, maybe I don't fit in. Maybe I shouldn't be there. Hey, I don't think God really loves you because you're not really that lovable. Huh makes sense to me. I don't think I'm very lovable. Why would, why would God love me? That, that's what spiritual warfare looks like for me. And, and I'm guessing the majority of you. The problem is, if we just say, oh, that's just the voices of society. Oh, that's just my self-talk. Oh, that's just my subconscious. If you don't wake up to the fact that you live in a world at war, you will not respond correctly. You you won't see this for what it is. You won't put on the full armor of God. Half the battle in all of this, in our context, is just waking up to the fact that we live in a world at war. Half the battle is just recognizing the schemes of the enemy. It's recognizing those schemes and those forces and those ideologies that blur your vision of God. That introduce counter-truths that don't line up at all with Scripture, and yet we believe them anyways. That, that's, most of the battle is won and lost in simply recognizing how spiritual warfare is manifesting itself. Because from there, we have the weapons. And, and if you weren't on Facebook, then you heard Chris explain the weapons, right? Oh yeah, we have truth. We have the righteousness that comes from Christ. We have this faith. That, that allows us to see and operate in the world. We have this salvation which actually freed us from all the dark and demonic powers of this world. We, we have all of this stuff, but if you recognize that you're in a world at war and you don't recognize the voice and the schemes of your enemy, you'll never put the armor on and you will lose this battle before you even realize that you're in one. the the battle for us is starting, the start of victory is just recognizing what are the schemes of my enemy? What is truth according to scripture? And and what am I thinking about on a daily basis? Where are those poisonous seeds being planted? Where am I walking around with untruths and half-truths that derail my walk with Jesus? Because if you're listening to the wrong voice, you get to the end of your, of, your, of your Monday, and all of a sudden you say, I feel deflated, I feel empty, I feel faithless, I feel disconnected from God, I feel dirty, I feel damaged, I feel unworthy, I feel unloved, I feel whatever it is. Well, how did that happen? Well, odds are it was a hundred little moments along the day when, when the tension of spiritual warfare And demonic opposition is pushing against you, but we don't stop to recognize it. We don't see it, and therefore we don't stand firm and fight against it with the weapons that we have. I think that that's where our battle is won and lost. In this room, as a community, I want us to recognize the voice of God, right? I want each and every one of you to grow in your awareness of the fact that God is whispering to you. He speaks to each one. And so part of discipleship is growing in our awareness that today and tomorrow and every day, your heavenly Father will be whispering to you. So we want to listen to His voice. Through all the static, through all the myriad of voices, we want to identify the voice of God and grow in our understanding of it. But, and this is more controversial, I'm going to argue we also need to grow in understanding the voice of our enemy you need to have a discernment of both as part of your discipleship to Jesus so that when the day of evil comes, when accusation and temptation and condemnation and false narratives, you can stand firm in the truth. You can stand firm in the victory of Christ and having done everything you can to stand. Would you stand with me as we close?